Brent, it's good to have you on. Skype tells me that we we haven't talked on Skype for over a year. I think that's their polite way of saying it's been too long since you've been on the show. Yeah, definitely too long. Jeez. <laughs> over the a hell? year. I don't know, yeah. I know how long it is. Uh, was a lot what I was have no Ian idea. Manton last time? Yeah, sure. maybe. I, I thinking, don't know. Yeah. Um anyway, big week for you. Uh congratulations. Yeah. I'm really happy oh. for you. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it's it's been really huge, you know, and um I feel great because uh, I, I made the app I wanted to make. I could see it in my head for all these years, and I had certain goals and met them, and the feedback has just been tremendous. So, yeah, super happy. So for those who don't know, although I'm suspect, I suspect that most people listening do know, NetNewsWire 5.0 shipped this week. I made fun of you. I think you listened to my show with Jim. I, I, yeah. I made fun of you in a very friendly way about your... <laughs> personal definitions of alpha and beta. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I've been using, I've been using net newswire. This your your new net newswire in a weird way, sort of a 2.0, maybe a 3.0. If you say that you, you originally had net newswire, I don't want to confuse anybody. The new version is 5.0, <laughs> but right, there was, right. I, I would say the third era of net newswire, you know, yeah, there was, definitely there was the original. We can get into all this in detail. There was sure. yours from the early two thousands. Then there mm-hmm. was uh, maybe four eras, maybe maybe the uh, who, who was the company that bought it the, when when they uh, Newsgator Newsgator. I would I would sort of say though that was sort of a continuation of the original era. It's just new ownership. Then there's the Black Pixel era, and mm-hmm. and now there's the new open source back in Brent Simmons hand era. Yeah. Um, I've been using it this version this year this new era from. I, I, it barely worked. It was called Evergreen for a while because Black Black Pixel still owned the Net Newswire name. Uh, I don't even think you were calling them alphas. I don't even know what the hell the, the version numbers uh, were. D for development. D, D for development. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. I've been using it since then, and I never really stopped using RSS. Uh, but I was actually my other RSS reader while Evergreen was it, it either only barely or non-functional was. Uh, Net Newswire three point three two, right? Of course, still my biggest competition, I'm sure. But I have uh, the advantage that it's going to stop working on Catalina. So the weird thing about this, I know you and I have talked about it. Uh, it's just such a bizarre coincidence that that the last Brent Simmons version of Net Newswire was Net Newswire three point three two. Uh, and, and again, no offense to my friends at Black Pixel who do excellent work and, and whose version of NetNewsWire was in many ways certainly more modern looking and, and acting than NetNewsWire 3.32 and kept up with the times. Um, it just didn't fit my brain the right way. Um, and so I just kept using what I was familiar with, NetNewsWire 3.32. But back in the day, in the 90s, Quark Express hit version 3.32. Uh, this was when I was in college, so you know I don't know what time it came out, but it probably would have been sometime around 90, 1995 or so. And you know, again, every company has their own weird ways of doing version numbers. It's it's one of the ways that we pretend that software engineering is this incredibly scientific, rigorous field, and everybody, everybody just <laughs> yeah. wings it uh, with version. I mean, right with Vesper, we. <laughs> We, we goofed around and tried to make everything have a 007 in it. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> Our best release has always had a 007. Yeah. Um, but Quark had this thing where it was 3.32. It wasn't 3.3.2. It was 3.32, although I think it was a, the way they did that 
tenth of a digit or hundredth digit, whatever you want to call it, the two was what most developers would have called 3.3.2, not 3.32. Uh, but then they also had R updates. So it was 3.32. And I, 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 this is it's perverted because I can't even remember what I had for dinner last night, but I can remember it was 3.32 R5. <laughs> <laughs> R for revision, I suppose. I guess, yeah. right? Yeah. Like minor, yeah. minor bug pack. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember how we used to I- I- install them back then. I guess we had the internet and we'd get them over it. And, and uh, By 95, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And R, you know, and Quark was very... Uh, you know, as the entire, you know, Adobe's apps and everybody in the graphic design industry, I mean, piracy was rampant, but they had, you know, so they had all sorts of anti-piracy, you know, checks, you know, against other copies running on the local Apple Talk network and stuff. So our student newspaper at Drexel, we were totally legit. I forget how many, how many Macs we had that had Quark installed, but every single one of them had a legit license. It was totally mm-hmm. legit, you know, so I guess it was with a legit license, it was kind of easy and you felt confident installing patches, like with like if you were pirating like Photoshop or something, it was always a bit of a worry yeah, to update right. to the latest version. So what if they patch <laughs> the way that that somebody cracked my you know the serial number, etc. But anyway, it just is so funny to me that two of the most used apps in my life stalled for a long time at three point three two. Yep. What does it mean? Nothing. But yeah. Yeah, it means it should be in my passwords. <laughs> Um, so let's uh, look back at the history. So Net Newswire, and, and I know it's been, but it has been years. So I think it's okay if we rehash this and we've talked about this. You oh, sure, talked yeah. about this on the show. But Net Newswire and Daring Fireball sort of came about at the same time. Uh, Daring Fireball, I started in August 2002, and I believe 2002 was when Net Newswire shipped. Yeah, I started working on Net Newswire in 2002. Net Newswire Lite 1.0 shipped maybe that fall. Um, and then NetNewsWire 1.0 full version shipped in like February or March, maybe the following year. Yeah. So, but it was all very, you know, public betas and all this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was very out there. Uh, I don't. And again, I, I, as with many of my longest and best internet friends, I really have no memory of how you and I met. <laughs> I, 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 well, I don't see. I think, I, I think we met by email somehow. Like we were on some, yeah. maybe a BB Edit mailing list or something. I, I, somehow, I feel like we knew each other online before we met in person. But I don't know. Yeah, for sure. We must have. Um, yeah, yeah. We definitely knew each other online because we didn't meet in person for a few years later. I don't remember how we met online, but I do remember early in, very early in the Net Newswire days reading this new Daring Fireball blog and thinking – Wow, this youngster, he seems to be doing pretty well. Real up and comer. I think I'll add him to the default feeds list. <laughs> it was a big I, it was a I big did. boost. Yeah. Being on the Net Newswire default feed list, for me at least, was a huge boost because I think the overlap between the audience that Net Newswire appealed to and the people who I think would would and probably still do enjoy my writing um was a large amount of overlap. My one of my favorite stories about Net Newswire. And the, the founding of Daring Fireball is back in the early 2000s. Uh, I, I'm still running Movable Type at Daring Fireball, but Movable Type was brand new, and it was it was a breakthrough because it was 
relatively easy to install. You know, so you could just pay five bucks a month at a shared host like DreamHost or Pair. Or also, you know, DreamHost is still around. I think you're still using them. Uh, oh yeah, I sure. still have an account at Pair. Pair's been around since the '90s. Great company out of Pittsburgh. But you could get, you know, pay, you know, four, five, six bucks a month or something like that. You get a shared hosting account, and you'd have a zip file, and you'd move it up to the CGI bin and unpack it, and mm-hmm. then you'd edit. There'd be like one of the files would be the one you'd edit with. Uh, you know, put a password in there and, and, you know, customize whatever. And then boom, you've got movable type installed and you could, you know, a bunch of default templates, uh, you know, and, and uh, I forget when WordPress came out, but it wasn't too long after. And there was a predecessor to WordPress, I think called gray matter and hmm. rings a bell. Uh, and of course, Userland had, uh, had the, what was the radio user land yeah and was before a, that we had manila which manila. was a, a hosted thing uh manila is the one that i worked on most mm. yeah. but a lot of these you know and, and it really was the uh, it was when blogging uh, exploded in popularity based mm-hmm. and, and a big part of it was prior to the release of these open source or or and or commercial packages like radio or manila um it, it the only way you could have a blog was if you wrote your own little system of doing it or you just hand edited HTML. I mean, that's how Zeldman for years, Jeffrey Zeldman's extremely popular mm-hmm. site was sure. just hand edited HTML for years, uh, which was a, you know, a, a not an enjoyable experience, even if you know HTML and B uh, sort of required technical expertise that a lot of people who could be, should be, and are terrific writers and bloggers don't have and don't want to have all of a sudden with these packages, boom, you know, it, it opened the door to lots of other people. And it's, oh, only, sure. of course, only gotten easier since then. But one of the things was that was a telltale thing was that you could kind of tell from most people's sites what, what they were using as their back end because they either stuck to one of the default templates or they took one of the default templates and then just sort of tweaked it, tweaked the colors, and maybe added a, a custom logo at the top or something like that. Right, you could. Oh yeah, that was very true. Yeah, you could tell a movable type site right. instantly. Yeah. So movable type. And the others. Yeah. One of the weird things about movable type was that it, like, when I got started, like in two thousand two, the default templates all had three RSS feeds over on the side. It was like you'd have a link for RSS zero point nine one zero mm. point or one point oh and then rss i, I guess rss 2.0 wasn't out yet i don't know but there you know in, in the weird way that rss had these weird forks and multiple versions that weren't really they were more different than each other than the version numbers made it look speaking of version numbers being weird mm. movable type just ga- just by default gave you all three right <laughs> right and so it because, was just you know those were very nerdy days and yeah. somebody thought well let's give people a choice why not yeah. right so uh, the way i did daring fireball was i installed it and was torn between whether i should write my own system or use movable type and it's i always think in hindsight there's a lot of times I regret not writing my own thing from scratch. And then there's other times where I think, well, that I probably wouldn't have gotten Daring Fireball started until like 2009 if I'd done that. <laughs> yeah, you'd still uh, be tweaking your pearl. Yeah, I don't know. On the other hand, I got Markdown. <laughs> I got Markdown out pretty quick, so maybe I could have. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard. To, it's it's you know, one of those mysteries we'll never have answered. But anyway, I installed it, looked at the default templates. I didn't do anything with it. There's no public remnants of that experimentation left. I never told anybody. It was just me trying to figure out how it all worked. Would this suit my needs? Is this a better use of my time? You know, can I customize it? Can I still customize everything the way I want it? Figured out that I could. 
And then instead of starting with a template and tweaking it, I started from nothing. I just erased everything, figured out how the template system worked and built the way daring fireball looks from scratch. And, you know, and I was, you know, like one window was my, what I was building from scratch from a totally blank slate, uh, literally blank slate gray. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And on the other was like their default template for the same thing. So like, here's the default template for your homepage of your blog. And I'd look at what they had and I'd look at what I wanted and, you know, I could say, Oh, here's how you do that. Here's how you get dates. Oh, I can kind of see how you format dates, blah, blah, blah. And I copy and paste it over and I got to the RSS part and I was like, what the fuck is this shit? I, I honestly <laughs> didn't get it. And it, they called it syndication. And the only syndication, the, the way I thought of the word syndication as a media nerd was like syndicated newspaper columnists, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, like instead comics of comics too, yeah, yeah, and comics, right? So like Calvin and Hobbes was syndicated, so that mm-hmm. you know five hundred newspapers across the country or the world all had the same comics, and there were national op-ed columnists. So you know, not everybody can be the New York Times, where they have their own stable of in-house award-winning columnists. You know, small-town papers would you know and still do, I guess, have syndicated columnists. Well, I thought, well, why, why would I want to be syndicated? I want people to read my stuff at my site. I don't understand mm-hmm. this at all. Doesn't this mean, what does this mean if I have this syndication that people can put my articles on their site? Forget it. I didn't understand. I really didn't understand what the hell it was for, why there were three versions. Anyway, the whole point of the story is then when Net Newswire shipped or started shipping and I was started using the betas, it all just clicked. I was like, oh, I get it. It's so you can read all these, you can see when there's new articles and read them right here. Oh, I better quick. And then like immediately, like <laughs> Pick one. within yeah. 30 minutes, I, I had an RSS feed on Daring Fireball. Yeah, right on. But I literally, it, it was Net Newswire that made, R, that made me understand what RS, the, the potential and what it was meant to be. I think it was a lot of people's first exposure to RSS. Um, the readers before then, there, there hadn't been like a desktop uh, reader like right. this. There right. had been a number of browser-based ones, some that you could run locally uh, even, but um, there hadn't been like an app you could just download and you know start going. And um, yeah, so for you and I think a lot of people, that was, that was their first exposure. The other interesting thing, and in hindsight, and here we are in 2019 and... <laughs> It's a very different story, but it, and it just makes the the, the complete seventeen year storyline so interesting to me. Is that in two thousand two, Coco, the the you know application programming frameworks that were new with Mac, new to the Mac with Mac OS ten, and came over from Next Step with Apple's acquisition slash reunification with Next in nineteen ninety seven. Um, was uncertain. Like longtime Mac developers were looking at it with a still in 2002, even with a quizzical eye, you know, and there was mm. still open, you know, there were vigorous debates uh, over the carbon versus cocoa versus the pragmatic, hey, I'm just going to do whatever it is that works, which is, you know, I think the right way to have looked at it all along rather than be r- religious or dogmatic about one side or the other. Um, but part of it, part of your inspiration was, it wasn't just that you wanted to make a good reader. It was that you wanted to make a, you know, you, you were intrigued by Coco and really wanted this. This was something you could really sink your teeth into. Yeah, absolutely. I had been coming from working on an app that started on Mac OS seven, I guess. 
and had been carbonized for OS X. Uh, but um, I was no longer with that company, and I wanted to um, write something new. And at that point, it seemed like writing something new in Cocoa would be great because Cocoa just did so much more, so much more easily than writing everything using the, um, using the Macintosh toolbox or Carbon, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, that just left so much, so much for you to handle. Uh, that Cocoa just like did. And I, I, Part of me just couldn't believe it. I'm like, wait a minute, they just up and did all these things for me <laughs> that I don't have to deal with? I, I just found that amazing. And yeah, so I think it was about 10 months from start to to shipping NetNewsWire 1.0. And, and I was learning Cocoa. I was brand new to it. But still, yeah, it really accelerated the development and was just so much fun. And it resulted in something that, and I think this is true of NetNewsWire 5 shipping this week that felt so at home with the system. Looked, felt, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 it breaks down for a lot of apps in a lot of ways. But some, it, usually it's a compliment if you can say about a third-party app, this looks like what it should look like, what we would hope it would look like if Apple were to do this. Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. You know, and in a lot of ways that the the one comparison and, you know, we could get into it later, but one obvious comparison and something I'm, I know for a fact that you've looked at over the years many times is, well, how does Apple Mail do blank? Because sure, yeah. reading email and reading RSS, there's a lot of similarities. You know, a feed mm -hmm. is similar to a, a mailbox or an account perhaps. And then in the account is a bunch of messages and in a feed are a bunch of articles and you click on an article or you click on a message and then you read the message mm -hmm. or you read the article, um, you know, and mail back then had drawers. <laughs> yes. Yes, it did. Yeah. <laughs> so NetNewsWire had drawers. Drawers were very cool. Yeah. Though to be fair, NetNewsWire never put the source list in a drawer where mail actually did in those days. Yeah, I do remember All your that. mailboxes were in a drawer. Yeah. Um, uh, NetNewsWire's drawer was used for a, a directory of feeds. I remember so that, that, right? Yeah, that, which was an awful lot of work to maintain. Um, so I'm not still doing that, though. I kind of wish I did, but boy, yeah. it's just too much work. It's, it's interesting because uh, uh, there's a, you know, and I think a lot of the coverage this week of NetNewsWire is sort of a, hey, it's not just a, hey, NetNewsWire is back, but a, hey, is RSS making a comeback? And in some ways, it's warranted because I think the heyday of reading people's blogs via RSS was certainly a decade ago. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a weird it's also a weird thing because in a way RSS has never, ever, ever been more popular and continues to grow at a crazy rate because of podcasts and podcasts are all RSS feeds, every single podcast. Well, maybe not every, I guess there's now these weird ones that you have to sign up for a specific app and, and they're tied to a, a paid service or something, but I wouldn't not, call that a podcast. I, I mean, wouldn't either. Uh, I've argued yeah. that. I wouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a show. It's an audio show. And we've had sure, you yeah. know, audio shows for ever since Edison invented the radio. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, but what everybody thinks of as podcasts, including my podcasts, uh, the Omni podcast that you host, you know, that are distributed 
to whatever podcast app you use to listen by RSS and Mm -hmm. each episode is an an RSS entry. So it's astoundingly popular. And even though people don't realize it, uh, you know, you have no reason. It's, it's plumbing in that case. It's yeah. Why you shouldn't have to know. Right. I don't know how many, you know, the, the, the staggering growth in the listeners of podcasts, you know, I'm sure that literally I'll, I'll bet 98% of them, maybe 99% of them have never even heard of the initials RSS. Right. And that's fine. But one of the things that, that, that Apple has done as the, I think very honorably as the steward of the iTunes podcast, uh, app and directory is they've made that directory open to third party clients, not just third party clients on their own platforms, you know, like Android podcast apps can use the iTunes directory to get what you were trying to do with net newswire, which is like, let's just have a list of as many good RSS, good or even decent, you know, anything that's not really, I mean, I don't know what your criteria were, but for the most part, what seems like with Apple is as long as it's not, you know, hate speech and, or, uh, like pornography or something that, you know, they listed in the, uh, the iTunes podcast directory. And so third party apps like, uh, overcast and and whatever else can can you can search for a feed and they can just find it right so you can search Mm -hmm. for omni and the omni shows um is that the name of the podcast the omni show the omni show yeah right the omni show will will show up uh and so you don't even need to do the tricky thing which is find a url to the rss feed for the omni show and paste that and manage a list of URL subscriptions. You could just go to a directory and do it. So there's certainly merit there. And I think the way that it's worked out with podcasts has certainly shown that there is, but you need somebody like Apple at the heart of it to a who you can trust and B who can do the hard work of maintaining this ever growing mountainous database of, of feeds. Yeah. And I've, um, just last night, I was thinking like that would be another great open source project. Hmm. You know, we could get people, you know, involved. But then I thought, man, I've really got my hands full just with that newswire. <laughs> I would really like somebody else to do this. Um, you know, there are a lot of things like that that would be so helpful in in uh, bringing us back to the open web. Uh, another one I've talked a lot about is um, something like Technorati. You know, those hmm. those blog search engines. They index a bunch of blogs. And if I want to go see who on the blogosphere is talking about NetNewsWire, you know, I have a feed that watches for that. And so I see that from wherever, you know, whenever it comes up. Um, we used to have a bunch of this stuff and, and we don't anymore. Uh, yeah, I, haven't I th- hope it comes back. I haven't thought of Technorati in a long time. And there was a time when, man, was that super useful. Oh, sure. Yeah. How, and there for, were some smaller things like BlogBridge, and I think yeah. Yahoo even had a blog search engine. I mean, they were all pretty useful. Yeah, but it was definitely an interesting way to find um, – not just when people were talking about a topic you're interested in, but as somebody who had a blog, you could find – You, it, I would constantly find like I, you know, interesting blog posts linking to my own blog posts. You know, mm-hmm. you could search Technorati. I forget how you did it, but it wasn't too hard, and you could search for – you know, blog posts that they had indexed that linked to daringfireball.net. And I frequently found things that I had not seen before. Yeah. And that's in those days, that's the way we had conversations. They were just kind of ad hoc across the web. Um, and, you know, so if somebody wrote something linked to me, I might have some kind of reply. Well, that's another blog post. And I would right. link back to whatever they wrote. And, you know, that's not as easy as 
as Twitter, but it was more substantial, I think. Uh, I think it was definitely more substantial. I mean, and again, there's trade-offs. It's, you know, like with everything, I'm not going to say Twitter's bad or Twitter ruined it, and there's a certain convenience, and there's there are certain advantages to the centralization of Twitter um, and knowing that there's just one place where I can look at for at replies to at Gruber and find a bunch of conversations. Um, but boy, even at 280 characters, the modern limit, it's, it, it loses a lot of nuance. Yeah, sure does. Yeah. And then there are disadvantages to that centralization too. Um, so I, I tend to I tend to prefer decentralized systems um, on the on the ground side. Even if Twitter were not borderline evil, that's just way too much power in the hands of you know unaccountable people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, on the whole, I would take the trade offs of the web we had circa two thousand five, two thousand six, uh, which really you know, and it coincidentally was right around when. Twitter first popped up. I, I think yep. coincidentally, I don't think Twitter's, uh, you know, I think that even if Twitter itself had never uh, become popular, I still think the same sort of shift away. I mean, somebody, some other platform would have done the Facebookization and Twitterization sure, of, yeah. of, and de, you know, centralization of, of this sort of thing. Yeah. In another timeline, we have different names for these same things. It's just some other companies did it. <laughs> um, I, it is interesting, though. It does seem like a lot of people are starting to push back on this. I saw David Hanemeyer Hansen had a nice tweet uh, linking to the Suite Setups uh, review of NetNewsWire 5 uh, and just mentioned one of many excellent points to be made about getting back. If, if you've gotten away from RSS feed reading, like just the fact that you know you don't get tracked. It's not about throwing tracking ads at you and, and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely right. I uh, said something about corporate surveillance, I think. Like, yeah. yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the things you can get away from. Have, you actually can do it. Have yeah. you noticed, because then the other thing that is sort of like what's old is new again, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's sort of tied to the potential for RSS reading. Again, I, 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 with my whole aside from five minutes ago about how RSS is more popular than ever because of podcasting, henceforth, when I'm talking about RSS reading, I'm really talking about sort of the net newswire sort of genre of feed reading where you're reading articles mostly from people who write blogs. Um, but the other thing that's really resurged in popularity is email newsletters. Um yeah, I find that fascinating. And and both free and paid. And uh, you mm -hmm. know, like friend of the show Ben Thompson at Stratechery, you know, is is doing a fantastic job with his uh paid subscription daily update newsletter with one free post a week and there's a couple other people in uh, um uh Neil Seibart has uh, above Avalon similar business model. Um, I think one reason it's more popular is for those sort of, if you want, if your business model for doing your writing full time is going to be based on, uh, not just on advertising and sponsorships, you know, which is really the same thing. Um, like, like mine at daring fireball in here in the talk show. Um, if you're going to go for reader support, 
I really, it, it really makes sense that you, you kind of need something behind a paywall of some sort. Like you, it, it doesn't really work to say, I'm going to publish everything for free. And if you want to pay me, pay me. I mean, people will pay something, but what really prompts people to pay is if they have to pay to read. And right. at a technical level, it's a lot easier with email than it is with a website, in my opinion. And, and maybe easier is the wrong word. Cause I'm not, I'm not really thinking of this as the developer of making it work or the publisher who's going to use this as my business model. I'm thinking as just the reader who wants to, okay, I want to read Ben Thompson's stuff. Uh, or I want to read the New York times or the Washington post or any of these other publications that, you know, let you have X number of free articles a month and then you have to pay. I, I really, I do it. I, I pay for a very, uh, uh, I, I don't know, at least half a dozen subscription things, probably closer to at least 10. Maybe I pay for the times, the Washington post. I pay for a bunch of newsletters, um, I pay for the wall street journal, um, uh, I'm always getting logged out of them. Uh, the New Yorker, I have a print New Yorker subscription, but it comes with a free online one. I, I can't tell you how many times a, a month I have to sign back into the New Yorker website and because they're telling me I'm out of free articles, even though I'm a paid subscriber. Yeah, it happens uh, to me too with Washington Post. Um, uh, yeah. that, that never happens with Stratechery. Yeah, right. It always right? Just Every shows day, up. Guess, guess what shows yeah. up in my email box every day? My email from Ben Thompson with uh, his thoughts on the business news from the day before the last few days. Um, and it's a, it's a, this is, and this is the other thing that to me makes it easier. It is an easier, better reading experience because guess what I don't have? I don't have any uh, pop-ups showing up on my email telling me that they have uh, a cookie policy and I'm inherently agreeing <laughs> to this. I mean, how many times, I mean, I don't understand. Oh, yeah. I know it's a GDPR and it's this European thing. Guess what? I, I, Freaking nonsense. I, I, I would rather delete every freaking cookie in the universe than have to d dismiss one of those things again. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that no, and would you like notifications from this website? Oh, and, no, and, thanks. <laughs> and the popovers that, that cover the actual content of the article, even if they're not trying to say you, you can't read this because you don't subscribe, they, they pop over and they say, hey, why don't you sign up for our newsletter or whatever? Give us your email address. And, and right. they cover the article. That never yeah. happens when I'm reading email. And yep. very, very similarly, it does not happen when I'm reading RSS. Right. Now, the difference is I will say that if I were reading most uh, – actually, I guess every single one. I can't think of a single site in my Net Newswire subscriptions where if I went to that person's website – because almost every single one is a person's website where they would be covering their content with popovers. But it's just a nice way to read, and, and, you know, and I feel like – that is, it, it, it's just one of many ways that the entire big corporate media world has just sort of lost the ball in, in today's world where they're, you know, and I don't blame them. I get it. It's tough. It's never been, the business has never been tougher to do good journalism. And uh, I get it that it's, I'm not trying to say it's easy just because Daring Fireball is doing okay. Uh I'm not saying it's easy, but it's so clear that, you know, hey, is this just, is this a nice experience for our readers is just a clearly nowhere near the top of their priority list. Right. And that, that seems stunning to me. Like job one is to create 
something nice to read, right? Right. So the experience of reading it should be way, you know, way at the top of the list. And the fact that these sites are almost uniformly hostile to actually reading the content is just madness. I, and I know I've used this analogy before and it's, it seems like a stretch because it would be so, it would, it would actually lead to physical confrontations in the real world. But when you buy a copy of, of a newspaper and you're reading it on the subway, nobody ever comes up and covers up the article you're reading, you know, <laughs> with a flyer for, uh, right. you know, something else. Mm-hmm. It, it you don't get interrupted as you're scroll you know all right you don't scroll a newspaper you you scroll your eyes right you go down nothing mm. actually covers up some you know like when you hit the space bar when you're reading an article on a website and then all of a sudden that's when they put the interstitial up that covers the article you're reading and tells you you're you're done yeah that never happens in the real world it's yep. it, it you know the worst part about reading a newspaper is maybe your hands get a little ink on them or something like that mm-hmm. I guess some people struggle to read a broadsheet but. I never, I always, yeah. I, I, you know, you fold it in half. Yeah. Right. There are ways. I just think it's crazy. And I really feel like that the web publishing world, and you know, you see this too with, uh, how much JavaScript is in the payloads for these websites nowadays with all these ad networks. And even with the privacy implication of the tracking aside, it's just an enormous amount of code and it. And you can see it when you monitor, your tabs in a process monitor, you know, like activity monitor mm-hmm. to see what's going on. And all of a sudden you just have a, a article you're reading open and it's using 20% of your max CPU or something like that. Um, it, it, it's madness. And I, I really feel like people are ready to go back to the relaxing, you know, let's, let's use something to read these articles that just is optimized for making it as pleasant as possible. Yeah. People who like to read, I mean, they like to read <laughs> uh, or they, they want to like to read. They want to enjoy it. Right. Uh, one of the things I delight in is um, on my personal blog, there's no JavaScript. Um, it's on a cheap shared host. I pay almost no money for it. And yet it's fast. Right. Because without, you know, all that junk, it's, you know, it's all pre-rendered. It's just HTML. No cookies are even involved. Yeah, it's just it's just super fast. I I like it when people tell me that they that when they're worried about their internet connection that they go they they go to the they open a browser tab and type da let it autocomplete mm. and uh, right. see if if daring fireball loads fast then they know everything then it must be something else right yeah. and if daring fireball loads slow then maybe there is something wrong with their internet connection uh, that is music to my ears yeah right it's one of the joys of statically rendered sites. Right. Even though some all this crap in them, even though every once in a while something is my fault or the sort, you know, like I need to, you know, do my annual reboot of Apache or something like that. Sure, but uh, but for the most part, it really it really is edifying to hear that. But it also makes me crazy because it's so easy. (laughs) I know. How about just don't do the things? Right, (laughs) you can save a whole lot of time. I know, I know, uh, but yeah. All right, let me hold that thought because I want to. I want to take a uh, take a break here. Thank our first sponsor, and then I, I have a programming story I want to tell you. Our first sponsor, speaking of fast web hosts, is Linode. L i n o d e 
looks like Linode to me, but it's pronounced Linode because they specialize in Linux. Uh, they just opened their newest data center in Toronto. It's built using their most up-to-date hardware and their next-generation network backbone. Actually, this might be out of date, this information I'm telling you. I think Mumbai, India is actually open now too. Uh, anyway, Linode is dedicated hosting in virtual containers with data centers all over the world. The fact that they have them in countries like Canada is really, really important uh, if you're in Canada and you have to comply with in-country data protection requirements and legal requirements. It's not just about getting the latency down just because it's nearer to you physically or maybe nearer to your audience. For some people, it's actually a legal requirement. Very important. They're expanding, literally expanding all over the world. Toronto, Mumbai, can't get much further apart than that, I don't think. Um, Anything you want to build, any kind of website you want, you can build it on Linode. They have dedicated CPUs if you need them, distributed applications, hosted services. Uh, everything features native SSD storage. Of course, everything's hooked up to a 40 gigabit network. Uh, you can pick from 10, I think it's 11 now though, worldwide data centers. You pay for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. So you can pay based on your typical traffic. And if something happens every once in a while where you know you're going to get a big burst of traffic and you might need more resources, you only pay for it while you need it. Super, super easy. Um, and one of the things is they have great pricing. Plans start at just 5 bucks a month. And that's not like a special offer, special deal, or a super limited thing that you couldn't really use. Uh, an awful lot of people could go a long way on their just default $5 plan. And they have a special offer for listeners of the show. Use this code TALKSHOW2019. TALKSHOW2019. You get a $20 credit. You could use that for four months of service and no questions asked. Don't like it? Done with it when you're done? Cancel it. Four months free with a $20 credit. The URL, linode.com slash the talk show. So that's a little confusing. They're, they're sort of like an intelligence test there. The URL is linode.com slash the talk show. The promo code to get the $20 credit is talk show 2019. Anyway, I am a customer. I'm moving slowly but surely everything during Fireball over there. Uh, just working on something this week, which I'm actually about to talk to Brent about over to my Linode server. It, I, can't say enough about how good and easy and for somebody who's been using the same server for over 10 years, how much nicer things have gotten in command line land. So my thanks to Linode. Uh, they're not just a sponsor. I'm a customer. I really recommend them. And remember that code talk show 2019 save 20 bucks. So anyway, I forget who said it. I should actually Google it. I, I should probably do more research as the host of the show. You've probably heard the adage, uh, I'm sure you have. Premature optimization is the root of all evil. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yep. Uh, premature. Let's see here. There we go. You can hear my uh, Apple extended keyboard, too, there. <laughs> uh, I've got one also. Yeah, they're still the best. Its source is credited to uh, Donald Knuth. Is it Knuth oh, okay. or Knuth? I actually... I think I, it's... <laughs> I actually don't <laughs> That's know. a good question. I think it's Knuth, but... Damn, I don't know. <laughs> most celebrated computer scientist who's ever walked the earth after, maybe after Alan Turing. <laughs> and I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, but it's uh, a well-known adage. And I think people misinterpret it. I know you believe it. And one of the things that I wanted, to, why I thought of talking to you about it, is that NetNewsWire is uh, small fast and stable. 
And, you know, a te- there's a part of me, and I know what you think too. Like I just, I looked at it after unpacking it and installing it and looking at it in the bundle in my applications folder. It's like 9.9 megabytes, mm-hmm. um, which is by today's standards, a very small app. Yeah, tiny. But there's a part of me that's so old and remembers, you know, when apps needed to fit on floppy disks, <laughs> where, where you think, 10 uh, megabytes, geez, what the hell is in there? <laughs> how many floppies is that going to be? <laughs> right? And, you know, part of the reason that Cocoa apps could always be, if you know, if engineered well and didn't use a lot of third-party frameworks, could be very small is because the Cocoa, the, the system frameworks, you don't need them in your app. You they're They're in the system. And so the app itself just just needs your code, the code for mm-hmm. your little app. Um, and, you know, it's a total digression, but that's why Swift apps have been bigger than Objective-C apps because up until very recently, because the Swift uh, uh, binary interface was still changing between versions of Swift, Swift apps needed to bundle all the Swift libraries and frameworks within each app bundle. Um, but all of a sudden, now that that's stable, Swift apps are going to get smaller too. Um, but that newswire, it's super fast. It's really, really fast. Uh, it's fast at everything. There are, it. it uh, I remember when I first started using Evergreen again, and I, I like fished out all of my feeds from my old version of Net Newswire, which itself was also fast, and and imported them into the new app and launched it or hit reload or something after importing it. And I was like, well, when's it going to load? Oh, 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 it did already. <laughs> it loaded all like, you know, 50, 50 different feeds, updated all of them. It, you know, it, no exaggeration within a handful of seconds, two, two seconds. There they are. They're updated. Mm-hmm. I think that people tend to, to the misinterpretation of that premature optimization is the root of all evil is, the idea that you don't you don't have to optimize as you go. You don't have to keep things fast as you go. You can, you know, ah, we'll fix it later. You can let it get slow and then we'll we'll optimize it later. Because Donald Newth says premature optimization is the root of all evil. That that is not what he meant. And I think that's actually the way a lot of software goes haywire. I love the old I've told this story before many times, you know, that the the rule Don Melton imposed on the WebKit team when he he started the Safari project at Apple was that every time you checked code in, you had to run, you know, the, the tests and benchmarks and the rule was nothing could regress performance wise. So if you were adding feature X to Safari and the WebKit browser and you ran the, you, you, it was all working and then you ran the tests and it made something slower, you couldn't check it in. You had to figure out how to get it working where it didn't make anything slower. All yeah, that's along. a great rule. Right. And this was informed by his time at Mozilla <laughs> where where <laughs> they would say, well, this works. We'll make it fast later. Right. And later never happened. And all never. of a sudden. Yeah. Right. Um, so I take this rule to mean a different thing. Don't, don't write code assuming you know what the best optimizations are going to be. I mean, write intelligently. But then run it and test it and figure out, is it actually slow? Where is it slow? You know, what, how can we change it? Don't, right. because guaranteed, a lot of the time, what you think is going to be slow isn't actually slow at all. And it's something you didn't even think about. Ah, that, that's the slowdown. But you have to measure it. You have to find out. Right. Exactly. That, and that is exactly the lesson that I've, I'm paying the price for 
as we speak. Um, I forget when I first wrote it. it might have been as far back as 2009. It's probably about 10 years old. But I wrote and still use my own little uh, bot to automatically post articles to the at Daring Fireball Twitter account. And I know there are a bunch of services that do this. You can just sign up. Um, but I wanted the tweets to be formatted just the way I want them. And mm. so, of course, I wrote my own. Uh, and it's something that I was running on a server with a, uh, it's a little Perl script. It just reads my RSS feed, makes a list of all the articles, uh, looks for ones that are new, something that hasn't been tweeted yet. If it finds one, posts it as a tweet, and then saves saves that ID for that article so that it won't get tweeted again uh, and stops. And then it's a cron job. Cron is, a, a for those of you who don't know, I'm going out in a wheelchair. I'm going to try to talk programming <laughs> on a non-programmer's podcast, but I think I can do it. Cron is a, a longstanding 30, 40-year-old Unix utility uh, that you can use to set up recurring tasks. You know, So you could say, run this script every five minutes or run this one every hour or run this script every Sunday at midnight or something like that. You can set up a schedule. It'll do do these tasks. So I have it set up as a every five minute cron task. Um, the, the logic being, if I go on a posting spree and I post two things quickly, why not have them show up five minutes apart on your Twitter stream so that you're not looking, it doesn't feel like the at during fireball account is, uh, uh, harassing you. Uh, the other thing, my script, a few of the other things I've added to the script over the years is, uh, it also won't post anything. I forget how long. It, it doesn't really matter. But I think it's like 10 minutes. So it, it won't post anything that was posted within the most recent 10 minutes. The idea being that gives me 10 minutes to fix any typos or mistakes before it gets tweeted. And mm. I, I, It gives Chris Pepper uh, yes. 10 minutes to email you. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's actually mm -hmm. uh, often what happens. And, <laughs> an incredible percentage of the mistakes I make, uh, the typos and stuff like that, are fixed within the first 10 minutes. And so that's, you know, one of the things it does. And for the most part, this thing has just run and run and run for like 10 years and with a few tweaks here and there. Um, but about a month ago, it just stopped working. Just hmm. nothing. And, uh, I was traveling at the time and I didn't even notice. Uh, and I guess I should have some kind of, some figure out it's on my list of things to do as I fix this is to figure out some way that I can get notified that it hasn't been working. Um, uh, but somebody on Twitter said, Hey, is the at daring fireball account dead? What's going on? And I look and I was like, huh, there's like four days of stuff missing. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And it was weird. I SSH in the machine. And what I could do is instead of just letting cron run it automatically, I can just type the name of the script and it should run. And I have it set up so that when it runs that way, it prints some useful information for me to read about what, you know, if it's posting anything or sees anything. And it was giving me this weird error and it didn't really make, it was very unhelpful. And then I figured it out. What it was, was that, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting dangerously out in the weeds here. <laughs> so TLS 1.1 is, is a, a standard. It's part of HTTPS. So if you're using secure HTTP, uh, 
TLS is a, a newer, more cryptographically secure version. The server I was running the script on was so old, and I, it was it, at the time. It's, Linux is a lot better now, where you can do apt get update something, and it'll update the the system. The server I was running this on uh, really couldn't be updated easily. I would really kind of have to cut, you know, download, you know, take everything, create a new instance with a modern version of Linux, and reinstall everything, um, which is a lot of work. But the server had a version of OpenSSL that only did TLS 1.0. And at some point in July, I believe, I still could be wrong on this, but it makes all the sense in the world, that Twitter finally pulled the plug on their APIs for Twitter posting and no longer accepted TLS 1.0. So I had a mm -hmm. server that couldn't speak TLS 1.1, trying to speak to an API that only spoke TLS 1.1, and uh, forget what I was using to do the actual posting, but was giving me a, an error message that was not anywhere near as clear along those lines as you would think. Um, Sounds like programming. Uh, now, here's the part where I, I bit myself on premature optimization. What I did 10 years ago is uh, I was keeping uh, all of the tweets that had already been posted in what in Perl is called a hash, what in a lot of programming environments is called a, what do you call it? What do you call a, an array where, where the indexes are keys? A dictionary. A dictionary, right. Yeah. A lot of programming languages call it a dictionary. This is a data structure that's very simple. You have a key and you have a value. So I could say uh, for the key Brent, I could say that the value is friend. This would describe my relationship with people. And then for the key Amy, the value would be wife. And then I could look up Amy and then print the value and it would say wife. Um, very simple, very popular, used in, you know, has different words in all sorts of different languages, but every modern language has something like this. And then what I did, and here's where I made the mistake, is I thought, well, wait, I want this. I'm going to use this for years and years to come. I post thousands of articles a year. I think, and I don't know how many articles I had posted to Daring Fireball as of when I wrote this 10 years ago, but as of now, I think I'm close to 30,000 or have just crossed 30,000 total articles posted to Daring Fireball. This is going to be thousands and thousands of articles, tens of thousands of articles. Seems like that would be slow. So I use something in Perl called uh, TIE, T-I-E, and let you tie hash to a database file. It's like Berkeley DB or something like that. You give it a file name. And then once you've tied it, it acts a little bit uh, from, at least in my opinion, it's sort of like the object database in Frontier where you've got this hash and every time the script runs, the hash springs back to life and has all of the keys and values. And when this ends, they're all written to that one database file. And so I don't have to deal with a lot of open and read and read all the lines and close the file and worry about all the file stuff. It, once you have it set up and you run the script, it just runs and it's magic, right? Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Well, it turns out, I don't know if it's an Endian thing. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. I think it's more of a ver you know old version of the, the Perl module that does it. When I copied that back to my Mac, I was just, in, in the meantime, I was just going to run it manually from my Mac. And in fact, that's what I am doing. Uh, it the version of Perl on my Mac, which is a lot more modern than the one on this 10-year-old server, could no longer read that DBM file. 
and, ah. and the DBM file when I opened it and like BB edit and then tried opening it in like a hex editor. Um, I could see some of the text, but you know, when you open like a binary database, it's like just a bunch of, it's not human readable. It's a bunch of gibberish. Yeah. So right. there's probably some way around it. There's probably some archaic way that I could write more code and force Perl to use the old version of the DB file format. But anyway, I sat there but thinking. That of, sounds like setting yourself up for, you know, future right. problems. Well, so, yeah. why didn't I just write it in a simple human readable format? Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about it and I actually broke the seal on it today because I want, you know, I knew you were going to be on the show. I thought I got to write this and see it. Cause I, I want to talk to Brent about this. And I thought, well, what's the stupidest, easiest, most obvious way that I could do it? And I thought, well, I could do JSON. That's superhuman readable. But then I thought, why, why even, why even, why even do JSON? But then I thought, ah, but then you're using a JSON library and you have to read everything into a data structure. And if there are 30,000 things, why even have a 30? And I, I just sat there thinking, you know, thinking and thinking and thinking. I thought, well, the dumbest thing I could possibly do is just write them to a log file and don't even read the whole thing into a data structure. Just every time there's a new thing, run the whole script, go through the whole log file line by line and see if it's already been posted. And even if it's 30,000 lines long, maybe you have to, if you get unlucky, you have to go all 30,000 lines to find the one you, oh, yeah, we already posted it. Uh, don't even read it into a data structure. Never read more than a line at a time. And so I wrote like a test file and I loaded it up with a million lines. That would be the equivalent if I had a million posts on Daring Fireball, which I think would take me somewhere around at my pace, like 300 years. So it seems like enough. And I'll still be a reader. Yeah, and the whole thing runs in a second. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, even in the worst case scenario where right. it has to get to the 999,999th <laughs> log of the line of the file, it it runs in less than about a second. And mm-hmm. the actual posting of the tweets to Twitter takes like two seconds anyway. So the whole script always took two or three seconds, and I'm only running it every five minutes. <laughs> right. And there's no user interface, you know, no. uh, relying on this. So it's, yeah. That's perfect, yeah. And it's it's literally the stupidest way you could possibly do it, and it's fine. When I was at Userland, uh, Dave Weiner um, would have a preference for what he called low tech solutions, you know, and and it was exactly things like this. You know, it turns out this is way way faster than you think it is, and it's just simple, human readable. Um, yeah, that's the way to go. I, I do think that one of the ways that the computing world has changed from the 90s until now, and it's a way that the Unix world has won out philosophically, is that whenever possible, make things human readable. Whether it's mm-hmm. a file format that you're writing or or a network API that you're sending over the wire. In the 90s, everything was custom binary stuff and I mean, there were, I don't remember any apps other than literally a text editor like BB edit, but like in the early nineties, I don't remember any apps who had a file format that was text. Uh, like you couldn't open a MacWrite file in a text editor. Uh, everything was binary and network mm-hmm. stuff was binary, right? Like it wasn't like yep. when, you know, like Apple talk was speaking in plain text that if you wanted to debug it, you could just look at what's going over the wire and read it. Whereas the Unix philosophy has always been, when it, when it's a, 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 when it's feasible, make it as human readable as possible, 
And I feel like the whole industry has come back around on that. Like JSON is a perfect, the, the rise of JSON is a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. I remember being so surprised when I first saw the web and learned that it's just a text file yep. behind that page. And like, and you could even figure out what things meant. You know, if you know that H stands for header, then H1 is like, oh, that's got to be the big one. I mean, yep. like, holy cow. Yeah. Coming from the computing world before then, yeah, nothing was that transparent or simple. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when I figured out how email worked that you could, this is before everything was encrypted. You could just log on to the SMTP server for your host and you would just type email commands and then you mm -hmm. could just type the headers. You would just, you could just, instead of using an email client, you could just talk right to the SMTP server and just write two colon space <laughs> Brent. I think I, yeah, I think I did that exactly once just to prove that yeah. like, wow. Yeah. Hey, that really works. Well, yeah. I did it to send like, like, prank messages to other Drexel students from like the provost saying that they were on academic suspension and stuff. <laughs> See what I, I did, I did like that. But what I do is I would, you couldn't manually do it, but you could use Apple script to make Eudora use a different yes. outgoing yes. email address. Right. And yeah. But then when I did do it, I, I, in those days, everyone had email signatures, which Eudora would automatically apply. Mm. So I forgot to turn that off. <laughs> so that was, that was the kind of confusing uh, thing, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a revelation. It really was though. It, it, I think it not only was a good practice in terms of debugability and maintainability and Hey, this, you know, uh, like I learned this lesson before I should, I, this is why I'm mad at myself that 10 years ago, John Gruber used this stupid database file for a thing that didn't need to be optimized at all for uh, literally up to a million or a million entries, let alone the tens of thousands that I would ever get to in practice. I can't believe I didn't try the obvious thing first. Um, and by the 10 years ago, I knew that, like I, I knew better than that, that, that the, the person to write comments for when I write scripts and code is not some hypothetical dummy who might be reading my code. And it's me in the future. Cause I'm going to forget everything about why I did it this way. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't really tweak Markdown often, but Markdown is my Markdown script is fairly complicated. Uh, but I, I still think it's very well commented because at least when I do want to change something or add something uh, and I go in, I'm like, the only way I can figure out what the hell is going on is by reading the comments. And the comments were all written <laughs> for me to read in the future knowing uh, right. which so they're written with respect for what I think will be my intelligence, but they're also written knowing you're going to forget everything about how you did this or, or mm -hmm. why this thing that looks like it doesn't like it's, why are you doing all this work here that doesn't look like it needs to be done? And here's the comment explaining what, what happened when you didn't do this. Yeah. Right. Uh, speaking of Apple script, net newswire 5.0 Apple scriptable. Yeah. You know, I had a much longer list of things that were going to be in 5.0. Of course, most of the time I thought it was a 1.0 app. Um, and there were a lot of things that got cut. But one thing I was adamant about was that Apple Script Support had to be in there on day one. People need to know it's there and to expect it. And um, a friend of mine named Olaf Hellman did, did all of that work and did a great job. One of the... 
It is. I'd like to talk about that because, you know, it's, it is in some ways a 1.0 app. Yeah. It's a 1.0 app in disguise as a 5.0. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, sort of like a reboot of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the, the, the only real complaints I've seen people writing about are the obvious things, which is obvious for every 1.0, which is that, well, here's some feature requests, X, Y, and Z. And some of them are things that are certainly on the list. You know, everybody has, every app has feature requests that you can't get to all of them. But some of them, you know, like the obvious one is that right now, NetNewsWire 5.0 only has one syncing service option, which is Feedbin. And right. if you are a longtime or current user of a different feed syncing service, and there are several and there are a bunch of good ones, uh, that's obvious. I wouldn't, I guess it's not a non-starter. You, you could decide to just switch over, but it's probably a non-starter because you want to keep using your IO, the iOS app of choice that you're using for feed reading or something like that. Um, but you have to draw the line somewhere, right? I mean, this app has been in the works for five years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you, you know, yep. shipping is an art, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, there are so many decisions and calls to make. And luckily, I've been doing this a long time, so I have some practice at it. Uh, so my thinking when it came to, to um, Feedbin and other syncing systems was I had to have one. I couldn't ship without anything. Because if I have one, it tells the people, even if I didn't do theirs, it's the kind of thing that we'll do. Right. You know, that we care about it. And, you know, it's a, it's a matter of adding more rather than doing syncing at all. Um, and it's a pretty easy call to say, yeah, we want to add Feedly syncing and fresh RSS and I know reader and, you know, basically all of them because, you know, there's, there's no reason not to, um, the hard work was getting syncing, um, the infrastructure in the first place. And then after that, it's really kind of just plugging in the details of the different APIs. Um, so we'll be able to do the rest with less, less effort. But then there are so many feature requests that um, I'm not sure if they belong in the app or not. Or they're like, yeah, when you get to that, I think 10% roughly of people probably would like that. So where does that go on the priority list? Um, there's all kinds of stuff like that. So a lot of decisions still to make in the future. Well, the other big difference between NetNewsWire, this NetNewsWire project and previously is that it is an open source project, both in, in terms of licensing and in terms of actual practice where you actually have, uh, a, a community of contributors who are actually writing lots, a lot of the code, right? So in theory, yep. you can have an open source app where you just say, here's my source code. Here's a, you know, an open source license. You can download the source code and do what you want with it, but there may not be a actual community contributing to, to the app. Yeah. So that's a whole new thing for me, uh, learning how to manage that kind of community. And it's really tons of fun. I'm, I'm enjoying it hugely. Um, and we've been taking it slow. We, we have, you know, maybe a half dozen contributors or so by now. Um, you know, I don't have to manage, you know, 40 people or something working on this all at once. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And, um, 
So one of the things, of course, that can happen is, you know, I might think to myself, well, I'd like Feedly syncing next. But then someone comes along and says, well, I want to do whatever other system first. And then I'm like, okay, go for it. Start work. Um, we'll answer any questions, help you out, do it, you know. And they might, that might happen before Feedly happens, for instance. So some things really depend on, you know, who comes in and what they feel like working on. Um, the ultimate cause of how things work and what goes in the app or not are, are still mine, obviously, but there's an element of serendipity, I guess. I don't know what to call it. Um, just based on who shows up and who wants to do stuff. One of the interesting technical decisions you made, and I say this, I do most of my computing for long, I, I don't, won't go into the details, but lately I do almost all of my Mac computing on my MacBook, and that is running Mojave dot latest. Um, but my iMac, um, just because of the distance I sit from it and where my eyes are, I, I don't see it as well. Um, so it's sort of my podcast station. Uh, I'm actually using it right now to podcast. Um, but I'm actually very conservative about updating. I'm still running 10.13. I've already forgotten what <laughs> what's the name. I, I, I hate Is that High Sierra? High Sierra. Uh, yeah. I hate the names. I, I really wish they would stay. I like <laughs> that iOS uses numbers because I can I, I can always tell which one, you know, guess what comes after 13, 14. <laughs> right. <laughs> I really, but anyway, I'm running High Sierra. NetNewsWire 5.0 requires uh, 10.14.6 or later. Yeah. And I'm curious of your thinking behind that. Well, we do have to draw the line somewhere. There has to be, you know, a baseline. And I think it's actually 10.14.6. Four, whatever. Uh, it was the first release where you didn't have to embed the Swift libraries in the app. Hmm. And I think the Swift libraries were bigger than the whole rest of the app combined, you know, including the app icon and everything. Hmm. And, you know, that seemed like a pretty good place to start. Like, you yeah. know, we can be one of the first apps that, you know, you don't need all that. So it's like a five megabyte download. I, I just, mean, it's I just, just wonderful. I just double clicked it here on my high Sierra machine. And is it, you're correct. It is indeed 10. 14.4 is the required version. Okay. So that to me is also, so I get it at a technical level that now where I just mentioned that before that you no longer have to embed all these Swift libraries. Um, you can make the download smaller. It's just, is that's just more elegant, but it's also clearly a privilege of being a free and open source project that you probably, if you were intending to sell this for $40, I don't think you would have drawn the line there. Probably true. Um, that's a, that's tough though, because in previous years, I always tended to become more aggressive right. about requiring the latest OS. And the reason is if supporting the previous version, uh, it's more work, it's more testing. Um, it's, it's not nearly as, as, inexpensive as people might think. Hmm. And so one of the big deals here with NetNewsWire is, you know, it is free and open source. We make no money. Everyone's a volunteer. I've got a day job. I need to, I need to be pretty ruthless about what the priorities are. And supporting an older OS just isn't a priority because that's a problem that kind of solves itself, right? Every day there are fewer people still on 10.13. Um, and so it just didn't, and it, and it hurts because I'm, Hey, I want everyone to use the app, but it just didn't make sense to make that, um, make that a priority. So 
I wanted to draw the line at 1014 and then 1014.4 really ended up being the perfect spot. Yeah. I do think that's one way that the Mac world, I'm not going to say it's worse. It's different though. And I feel like in the old days, a well-written Mac app would run further back and further forward without changes. And I feel mm-hmm. like it, for various reasons, developers are more on the treadmill of requiring across the board. And, you know, for people who don't know you, your day job, you work at the Omni group, uh, but you're not a developer there anymore. You are, what you, do you have a title or are you just unofficially am, product marketing director? Uh, my title is marketing human. Marketing human. Yep. Um, and basically my job is I write for the blog. I do the podcast. Uh, right, you know, ad sponsorships, various stuff like that. Interact with users. Yep. Um, but the Omni Group, uh, do you guys have a hard and fast rule? I mean, I guess it depends on how old the app is, that you've got apps that, you know, new ones that are more recent and probably cut move the cutoff date and ones that are a little, you know, none of them are old. That's one of the great uh, achievements of the Omni group is that, is that they've sort of been doing this for 25 years and have never really had like a down cycle or let something languish too long. Um, but how far back do you guys tend to go at the Omni group? So I think in years past, Omni group would go back maybe a couple releases of the OS. I think these days it's more likely to be uh, back one. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's not all in my head, but I think yeah. Omni has moved along with the rest of the industry to be a little more aggressive about that. And, and frankly, you know, it's easier now. Back, you know, back in the, hmm. I mean, you had to go buy Jaguar, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Ten dot two. I mean, I remember people lining up outside the app store to, you know, to get the new Mac OS release. These days, you know, it's just an, it was also a software update. It yeah. was also expensive. Like I, I believe the first few updates yeah. to Mac OS ten were like one hundred and twenty bucks. Absolutely right. right. Yep. Uh, yeah, and people would line, line up. Yeah, they totally would. Yeah, hundred twenty. Could you imagine if they? Could you even imagine if like next month that you know Apple Phil Schiller comes on stage and and he's proud to introduce you know uh, we told you about it at WWDC. Here's macOS Catalina, and it's one hundred and twenty dollars. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, and it ships on DVDs. I, I think people would laugh. Even if he didn't say DVDs, even if he just said it was going to be $120 in the app store, I, I think the audience would laugh. I don't even think they would believe him. You know, like, yeah. I think it would play yeah. as a gag, even if they were serious. Like, uh, yeah. And I think that there's such a high percentage of uh, Apple customers across all the platforms, including the Mac, uh, which is neat, in my opinion, when they talk about how many new to the Mac customers they still have every quarter. Um, who I don't think I think you would have a hard time convincing them that ten years ago we paid one hundred and twenty dollars to get the new version of Mac OS ten. Yeah, and not only that, people lined up like <laughs> long lines around the block to get the new Mac OS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other another long-standing developer I know you use and love the app, but BB Edit from Barebone Software has also, and I've, it's just why I've no, another app that I've noticed the trend where BB Edit is, requ- I don't know what its current requirements are, but it's, I think somewhere, like you said, I think it's pretty much like current minus one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for similar reasons, it's just too hard to test, too hard to, um, it, it almost to put your name behind, right? Like if you're, yeah. if you tried to support further back, you don't want, 
you're not trying to anger. Like if you have a customer who is very conservative about updating their, their system software and they have a Mac running iOS or Mac OS 10.12 say, or, you know, I don't know. My parents' iMac is probably running like 10, 12 or something like that. Uh, you know, whether through apathy or whether through just a, a very conservative nature, which is very reasonable, right? Especially if you're using totally. machine for, you know, some kind of important production stuff and you've got everything working just right and you know it all just works right. Uh, and you just don't want to take a chance that updating the system, you know, and all sorts of mm -hmm. stuff does break. You know, there's, there's, uh, uh, I believe Catalina is going to finally break 32-bit uh, compatibility. So yeah. if there are any apps that people depend on that are 32-bit Mac apps, uh, you better not update to Catalina. So it's reasonable. Well, after all these years, Userland Frontier, this is the last right, um, because it's OS a, it runs on. Because yeah. it's a 32-bit app and the, the, work, mm -hmm. the work to 64-bit eyes. I don't know what the verb is. <laughs> I don't know how to 64 verb. bit eyes that works. Yeah. Sixty four bit eyes is uh, I'm not going to say impossible, but it's akin to rewriting it. I would I would guess knowing yeah knowing how sure. old that C code is and how many assumptions there are. Mm -hmm. um, well, and that that C code is using Carbon APIs and right yeah. So you just start from scratch. Yeah. Um. But you you know so you want to respect those customers and you would like to make them happy. But there's a part of there's a part too that you want to say to them. You just want to be honest with them and say, uh, "I get it. I get why you're still running an old version of macOS, and I respect that. We respect that as a company or whatever. But we can't stand behind the latest version of our app running on that because we don't have the resources to test it adequately." Yeah, that's right. Right. So keep running our old version of our app. <laughs> yeah, and and that's what I you know. People have asked me about that news work quite a bit. And so I say, yeah, yeah, I wish I had a better answer for you, but our priorities are with new features rather than uh, the great amount of work that that would entail. Right. And, you know, sooner rather than later, 10.14 is going to be old. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, uh, another thing people have commented on with NetNewsWire 5 is that there, as of this moment, there's no theming options at all. It's, you know, you, right. articles all render with this default uh, article theme, modern, generous font sizes, um, but very, very, uh, I, I think it's very appropriate as the default theme, and I find it very readable, and I read a lot of stuff with it every day, but it's also very generic. It is very much uh, along the lines of, uh, you know, it's using the system font, so it's San Francisco, uh, uh it's very plain, which I think is great as a default, but obviously some people would, you know, and Net Newswire has a history of supporting themes that you could customize to the full extent of what CSS and HTML allow. Yeah, so that's something I'd like to get to fairly soon. When that when that feature first came out in Net Newswire 2, people really loved it. Um, and people would make new themes and send them to me and and some of them I, I would actually include in the app. Did you and include mine? I think you did. Yeah, you was yours the one that looked like mail, basically? Yeah, 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 yeah. sort I, of. I think I did, yeah. Yeah, it looked like a cross between mail and mailsmith. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that yeah. was in there. Yeah. Yeah, and so that was tons of fun. And so people really, that was just a way to have fun with the app. Yeah. And, um, I, I, you know, I love that. So there were um, 
yeah, that was just a great thing. And and I get why people might not want the, you know, plain kind of default theme. Yeah, I totally do. So I would like to not only make, uh, do that feature, but make the old NetNewsWire themes compatible. So that you could use an old theme file and just, bring mm. it in. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that'll turn out, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, about I'm going to give it a try. That's an interesting idea, but I don't know about mm-hmm. that. <laughs> I, it shouldn't be difficult to find out if it's cool or not. Right. So that's like an evening's work. I suspect. Do you read more? Do you subscribe to more feeds now than you used to about the same or fewer? Um, in the old days I used to have around 150. These days I have double that. Uh, I read fewer, but the ones who I because and and what I've but I what I do is I I've unsubscribed or stopped subscribing to uh, feeds from bigger publications mm-hmm. like because uh, they don't they don't put the you know if they don't put the full article in the feeds I just don't I, I don't want it. I don't want. Yeah, it. Right. I don't want it. I don't want to use Net Newswire just to know that there's something new there. It's. Mm-hmm. I really do want to do my reading in the app. Right. Um, uh, a lot of my feeds are from people who blog like once a month or whatever. I mean, there there are plenty like yours that are more frequent bloggers, but there are people who don't write that often. But when they do, I sure want to see it. Yeah. The old Net Newswire had a feature that I loved. <laughs> Where I forget what the cutoff was, but if a feed hadn't been updated in X days, oh, yeah, right. it would turn yeah. the name of the feed brown. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and people would say, oh, God, my blog has turned brown in that newswire. Yeah. Uh, any thought to bringing that back? Yeah, I've thought about it. Uh, I, I, I intended to at least have the, uh, the old dinosaurs window in in um the new net newswire and i you know i still might but it got cut for the shipment um but so that was a related feature where you could um open up a window that would show you all your dinosaurs uh, and you could pick whatever last hasn't been updated in 30 days or 90 days or whatever and you could see which ones uh were apparently dead and you could unsubscribe right from there um but yeah that that was related to the brown feeds feature One of my favorite little things, and it was funny because I didn't, I guess I noticed it, but I only noticed it subliminally um, because I didn't complain about it. But in, uh, it was Josh, Josh Ginter who wrote the sweet setup review of NetNewsWire. I linked to it yesterday when I linked to the NetNewsWire announcement. Um, but he pointed out explicitly that right now there's not a lot of smart feed options in that newswire, but one of them is last day, which is super, mm-hmm. to me super useful. But he observed, and it's something I, I like. I said I noticed it subliminally because I hate when software works the other way. But last day doesn't mean like from midnight on. It means like whatever time it is, it's like a rolling twenty four hours. Yeah, and it's called actually called today. Yeah, like yeah, we're we're stretching the meaning, but. Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, well, I've only had a couple complaints. <laughs> as a as a night owl who does often does read after midnight, uh, you know, like I've I'm trying to think what apps. Like I, I feel like there's a way that I set up a smart. I have a similar smart mailbox in Apple Mail, um, but I think that like on iOS where you can't. I, I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, forgive me. But I think that on iOS where you can't. You don't customize your smart feeds. You only get the ones that are built in. There is no customization. You, the today feed 
cuts off at midnight. And I hate it. Oh, it makes me mad all the time. Yeah. Where I'll like check and I'll be like, let me make sure I don't have any email. I'm like, I only have two unread emails today. That's great. And then I realized it's 12.05. <laughs> and I have like 98 yeah. from yesterday and I, right. I have to fish them out. It's just little things like that that make me happy about apps. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it should be fun to, to yeah. use an app. And I kind yeah. of feel like in some ways we've gotten away from that, even though uh, our soft, you know, computers are more powerful than ever, but I feel like we're not using them for fun. We're using them for stuff that's not fun, like sandboxing. And one of the things that kills me about so many apps these days is despite these amazingly fast computers, they've gotten so slow. The the apps have gotten so slow. And right. I'm just like, it just feels like a slog sometimes. So my design goal here was, you know, make it, just freakishly snappy. Well, I think you succeeded. Uh, Thank you. One of my other favorite things, and it is a hallmark of Net Newswire. I would have told you as a friend, I would have taken you aside, had an intervention, and told <laughs> you you cannot ship without it. Is arrow key navigation through the app? Yep. Uh, which I really. I wish could have, like, I, I don't understand. I want to go around at Cupertino and bang Apple people's heads and, you know, just slap them upside the head and say, look at how in this app you can just use these arrow keys and move between panes and everything happens very fast. And when you go down in the list, you don't have to wait for the next thing to load. It's just as soon as it takes more time to press the button, the arrow key button, than it does for the view to render. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it feels you know, I always said it makes net news, it makes it feel like you're playing a game to go through net newswire. It has like the the low latency of a game to mm-hmm. just move around your articles. Yeah, yeah, and all the the single key shortcuts. Um, my favorite new one I don't I can't believe I never thought of it before. And someone actually suggested it is to use the N key for next on red. Oh, I didn't I just never had that, but that's new in five point oh. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, use, I use that all the damn time. So one of the things, another hallmark of NetNewsWire, and it works, it sounds crazy. And I, I think back in like whenever you first started doing it, 2002, 2003, it was early on. But you, you, you use naked alphabet keys, uh, or I should say unmodified alphabet keys as shortcuts. So mm-hmm. you, you don't have to press Command-K to mark a feed all the articles is read. You can just hit K. Yeah, And so to get to the next article, you don't have to hit Command-N, because Command-N would be new. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that would do in that newswire, but... New feed. Oh, yeah, there, so it's already used. But you can hit just plain N, no modifier. Which, when, I fir- when you first started, when you first implemented that, I, my, the, the traditionalist in me, the, 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 the almost religious, I know what idiomatic Mac software is supposed to be like, and part of the reason... I love Brent Simmons's work is that he clearly gets it too. I remember thinking, did this guy have a stroke? What is wrong with him? You, you can't, that, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. But then I tried it before I complained. And I was like, you know what? You can do this because it's not really an editing app. And if you are editing like the name of a feed or that brief era when NetNewsWire actually had a blog editor built into it, which eventually was spun out and is still live today is Mars edit with our friend Daniel Jacket at uh, red sweater. Um, if you were in an editing view, of course, hitting K didn't mark the current feed unread. It typed a K. 
It right. didn't, it, it, it doesn't, it, it somehow seemed wrong to me. And then I realized in practice, there's as, as long as they're only active when it makes sense in terms of what currently has the input focus, it'll never get in the way. Mm -hmm. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, the, the app is basically in a generic sense, just a database navigation app. So yeah. Why not make it fast and simple? I would really like that feature in mail. I guess it's one of those things where I, I, I could probably, well, I see, I, there's a lot of things you can do with like keyboard maestro or Apple scripts or something like that. And a lot of times when I think of features where I want to request to somebody and then I think, well, let me see if I can hack it together with keyboard maestro and it works perfectly. And I think, well, then I won't bother them. Mm. Uh, I wish I, mail had a next on red command. I do too. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Boy, that would make my life easier where I could just mm -hmm. skip through and I don't want to have to scroll because, you know, it's like sometimes you get these marketing emails and it's like just to scroll to the bottom is like six hits of the space bar, you know? Right. Yeah. I don't want to do that. I know I don't want to read this. I just want to go yeah. next, 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 next. Uh, and maybe another key that deletes it and then goes to the next. Yeah. Archives or whatever you yeah. kids do today. I like deleting no, deleting's great. I ever tell you about? I, I I think I actually let the domain expire, so I can I can tell the story. Uh, I've tried to give up on on my my terrible collection of domain names that go unused. Uh, remember, this is back in the same era, that early two thousands era. Remember when uh, our friend Merlin Mann uh, was was talking about Inbox Zero? Mm -hmm. Yep. And inbox zero was uh, like a philosophy, a way, uh, a, a philosophy combined with a series of strategies to keep your your email inbox at zero on reds, and it would make you feel better about your life. You know, you. you I do it every single day. Still. I I don't. I I have. Uh, let's let's see how many on reds I have. Uh, I wish I could. I would make me feel better. It actually is a source of anxiety. So my my four main email accounts have. 37 unread. That's not bad. Uh, 1,228. Uh, 6,408. Nope, it just went up because I launched it. 6,914. And then uh, 13,000. Nope, 13, 13,600. Uh, and the one, the one with, nope, nope, the one with 6,000. This is, tells you how long it's been since I launched mail on, on this iMac. What did I say? Was it 6,900? It's actually yeah. at 7,800. 7, <laughs> uh -huh. I just downloaded 900 emails <laughs> while we're talking. Um, and I actually declared bankruptcy on that one earlier in the year where I, uh, I couldn't, so bring myself, couldn't bring myself to mark them as red. So what uh -huh. I did is I created uh, a new mailbox and then selected them all, left the red state as it was, and just moved them to that mailbox out of the inbox. <laughs> mm -hmm. But anyway... There was this inbox zero, and it was a popular thing, and I think it was a fine idea. But I, I registered the uh, the domain name select all delete. Nice. <laughs> and I was going to make a single page website with my. <laughs> 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 You've heard of inbox yeah. zero? Let me tell you about a better way. <laughs> it's called select all delete. Uh -huh. Step one: select all messages in the mailbox. Tip: <laughs> Command A. Mm -hmm. Step two, hit the delete key. Couldn't be easier. Step three, we'll walk away. 
Select all, delete. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what, my feeds, my feeds stay close to zero for the most part. Mm-hmm. I, I find it very, I, you know, and it's very different because there's no spam. There's no email marketing. I don't get marketing messages in, uh, right. in RSS. I don't get pitches from PR companies in RS, RSS. Um, but I, you know, and, and there's other people who, you know, everybody to each their own. I'm sure some people subscribe to 500 feeds and never, never, ever catch up. Sure. Uh, um, I know Dave Weiner, uh, who co-invented, you know, who you worked with and you mentioned before and has done so much work and in terms of actually literally creating the RSS formats and popularizing the use of them for blogging and, and helping to create podcasting, et cetera, et cetera, is a believer in what he calls a river of news where you just subscribe to stuff you're interested in, put them all in one stream and just, you know, read till you get bored, scroll down yeah. till you get bored. And then come mm-hmm. back later, and and there'll be new stuff at the top. So, which is sort of, I think, how most people read Twitter, right? Yeah, I think so too. I realize yeah. that you know, I, I don't know how many other John Syracuse's there are who are are Twitter completionists, but I subscribe to way too many tw- feeds in Twitter. Um, to me, Twitter, the success of Twitter, the popularity of Twitter, is validation of the Dave Weiner River of News uh, mm-hmm. theory. Yeah, and I think Facebook's similarly. Yeah. yeah. People just kind of read yeah. through the stream until right. they're bored or whatever. Right. Yeah. But that's not how I use RSS. It's how I use Twitter, and I'm happy to use mm-hmm. Twitter that way. But I use Twitter where if, if there's a feed where I feel like I've got like a lot of unreads and I feel like I don't feel like reading this, I just unsubscribe. I ruthlessly unsubscribe to RSS feeds these days. Whereas sure. yeah. in the early days, I would just keep adding and maybe just like drag them to the bottom or something. I'm pretty ruthless about just marking stuff as red. Um, you know, without really looking at it either. I mean, these things, it's not email. It's not addressed to me. I don't have to <laughs> see it. And I can trust the universe that, you know, if there's something really important, I'll see it somehow, some way. So yeah, the K, the K button. Kills them. That's what K stands for. <laughs> I love it. All right. Let me take a break here and thank our uh, second and final sponsor of this episode, uh, which because it's the end of August is a little abbreviated. It's our friends at Express VPN. Look, VPN, virtual private network. You ever use a public Wi-Fi network at an airport or a coffee shop and maybe like your iPhone will warn you when you connect. It'll say, hey, this network is not secure. Uh, Maybe you look around like a good way to tell you're on a public Wi-Fi network is you go to the sharing sheet and (laughs) everybody else in the airport terminal where you are or maybe on the plane, like when you're on the the go-go thing in the plane and you see all of these random strangers in the the, uh, airdrop list. It's because you're all on the same network and it's not encrypted. A VPN is a secure encrypted way. You connect to a VPN, you can use a public network. Your connection to the internet is over SSL directly to the VPN provider. And then everything else goes through there. It's all encrypted on the local network and you won't have that problem. Uh, Much more secure. Some companies require VPNs for obvious reasons to do company work because it's that's that much that difference the difference between insecure and secure uh but you could use one and for your own private use and express vpn is a great way to do it it secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public ip address from the sites you limp you visit so they it also helps reduce tracking because sites don't see your ip address they see express vpn's 
IP address. They've got easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, your phone, your tablet. And turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. You don't have to be a, a network administrator or a computer expert or a security expert to configure weird things. Really, one click, one tap on the phone app, and you're boom, you're connected to ExpressVPN. And you can safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. And it costs less than seven bucks a month to start using it. It's the number one rated VPN service by TechRadar, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't like it, cancel it, get your seven bucks back. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free. So in addition to just being seven bucks a month regularly, you can get three months free by going to expressvpn.com slash TTS. That's expressvpn.com slash TTS, TTS for the talk show. And you'll get three months free when you sign up for a one-year package. Let me do some follow-up. I got I to gotta get this off my chest. All right. Uh, I don't want to bore you. Uh, did you listen to the show with Dalrymple? I think you did because we talked about Net Newswire. Yeah, I did. Um, I kind of spaced out during some of the Apple Card bits. Yeah. Well, but, guess uh, what? That's what the follow-up's about. <laughs> ah, excellent. <laughs> All right. Here's a problem I had with Apple Card. And I talked about it with Jim, which was that I signed up for Apple Card, and the sign up was just as easy as promised. And boom, there it is in my in my phone's wallet app. Uh, the day after I recorded with Jim, uh, doorbell rang, and, and FedEx or UPS or somebody put an envelope through the mail slot, and there was my actual card. I had the actual physical titanium card. Um, but the one thing I didn't have was an easy way to switch my apple stuff to use apple card and that was one of the reasons i signed up for the card was because you you get your itunes purchases or like uh i pay 10 bucks a month for uh icloud storage i want all that stuff on the apple card i get three percent cash back there was no easy way to do it what i had to do and i talked about it last week was the only way i could see to do it was to go in and enter the credit card number the 16 digits and the expiration and the secret cvv code all manually like a, like an animal. And then it just mm -hmm. showed up in my list as a quote MasterCard with a generic MasterCard logo instead of Apple card. Uh, hmm. I can verify that while I was in that state, uh, I was still getting 3% cash back on Apple purchases, but it didn't seem right. Anyway, long story short, I reached out to Apple and top people on the Apple, Apple top card team people. Uh, looked into it. And the problem was that I'm, one of the old old farts who has two Apple IDs in active views. I actually have a bunch of Apple IDs. Like my Apple developer connection one's a separate one. But I've got an iCloud account, which I use for like iCloud storage and iMessage and all of that. Uh, it's a, a Mac.com address. But I don't use that for iTunes. I signed up for iTunes way back when using a Daring Fireball address. And I suspected that might be the problem. But the real problem is that I didn't have two-factor authentication on the store account. I only turned on two-factor for the iCloud account. Oh, God, this is tedious, John. It is tedious. It's probably this, a bad idea. But my thinking was, what do I really care about with two-factor? I don't want to get hacked. I don't want anybody hacking my email. I don't want anybody hacking my iCloud backups. You know, I've got yeah. important data in iCloud. I don't really care if my iTunes account gets hacked. What are people going to do? Watch the movies I've already bought? No. 
I don't care. What are they, are they going to buy a movie that I don't want? Well, then I'm going to get the notification from my credit card and I'm going to see that it was fraud and they'll take care of it. Right. Like there's not as much yeah. downside. So I, and I felt very confident that my password was adequately secured. It was a, it's a unique password that I don't use anywhere else. Uh, but anyway, Apple pay doesn't work without two factor. And so the fact that I had this split account was the thing. And once I turned two factor on, on the other account, um, I was able to add the Apple card magically the way you're supposed to. So there you go. Nice, nice update on that story. Uh, the other thing is I said, Hey, wouldn't it be nice if you could use your Apple cash to pay your Apple card credit balance? Turns out you can do this, but I didn't realize it because the only way it's exposed is when you go into the wallet app, you click your Apple card, uh, and you click like pay early, right? Instead of waiting for your bill to be due and getting a notification, you could you can just pay it off whenever you want. If you pay now, you get like the little slide up sheet from the bottom that says here confirm it. You can switch your the source of your payment in that sheet from your bank account to your Apple Cash card, and you can put you know even if you only have five bucks on your Apple Cash card, you could just put it right towards your Apple credit card. Hmm. Uh, I didn't realize it because I hadn't tried to pay the card. So I didn't realize that it was there. I was just looking at the section where you can add bank accounts. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if you could add your Apple cash card? So anyway, you can do that. And then last but not least, <laughs> I, uh, I was talking to Jim about a guy who I remember fondly from the nineties on the home shopping network who would yell and scream at you to buy baseball cards and tell you, you <laughs> You would regret this for the rest of your life. A couple of people also, a couple of uh, listeners, remember him fondly as well, and they, they have better memories than me. They remember his name. His name was Don West. He apparently was also involved with pro wrestling up in Canada, which tells you a lot about his, his attitude. So uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a YouTube video. You can watch him <laughs> doing his thing. And you're going you're gonna to think I was uh, drunk and high who have enjoyed watching this on a nightly basis. And you'd be right. Uh, and then also, Will Ferrell... This deal makes no sense. <laughs> exactly. You're going to regret this for the rest of your life. Uh, SNL had a series of skits in the 90s where Will Ferrell played him, and, and they're hilarious, including one where uh, instead of selling baseball cards, they're selling Star Wars merch, mer memorabilia. And then they... <laughs> They're trying to sell Mark Hamill for eighty thousand dollars. <laughs> well, that's a discount. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's, <laughs> uh, so there's that's it for follow up. Uh, I'm trying to think what else is going on here. I but, still can't get Apple Cash set up on my phone. Why? So bugged. I don't know. I you know there's a big button to press. I press the button, turns into a little spinny, spins for a while, then turns back into a button. Do you have two factor on? Yeah. Well, probably. I don't know. <laughs> that would be you my would think suggestion. Though, I know, but I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I do. You would think at some point it would tell me there was an error and what it was. Nah, just spins, gives up. Um, do you see that uh, breaking news before we started recording that Jack Dorsey's Twitter account was hacked? I just saw the headline, but no, no details. I'm, I'm delighted wrongly. It should, you know, that's a terrible thing. Um, yeah, because it could be it could be anybody. Well, it could be very bad. There's one yeah. per, there's one particular person who, and I even when I wrote about it on Daring Fireball, there's one particular person who I'm terrified of having his Twitter account hacked 
because I believe it could literally lead to like a shooting war. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> so if, we know who that is. If Jack Dorsey's Twitter account could be hacked, I I worry. I, I sincere. I don't think it's an overblown concern. I mean, Jack Dorsey, I think understands how Twitter works a lot better than the other guy. I'm thinking of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so if he could be hacked and somebody could spew a bunch of racial nonsense or whatever they were posting, uh, I think it'd be pretty, it's, it's, you got to think, you got to worry that it's possible that, you know, whose Twitter account could be, uh, hacked and somebody could post something truly dangerous. So I, I, I want to laugh, but I would, yeah, but I, and I, I kind of laughing. I would, I would be delighted. This should not happen. If, the president's account were hacked and somebody came on and started like posting rational, <laughs> non-racial nonsense. Right. It right. just seemed like presidential and, and, and good. Right. That I would salute that. I, I mean, yeah. uh, that would be but that, honestly, no, don't do, don't right. do it. <laughs> yeah. Don't do it. Um, no. but I, you know, uh, trying to think it's, you know, it's the end of August. There's not a lot of news. Um, what about the, uh, uh, I know everybody's talking about it. Jim and I talked about it these rumors and it, I'll bring it up with you and then I'll leave it alone until we find out if it actually ships. But the, the whispers on the street that Apple might be re- in some way with some products returning to the six color Apple logo. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, I, I do walk the streets a lot and I hear people talking as they walk by. Um, yeah, I don't know. I saw that. I saw the, uh, the events and that would be cool, but weren't there only five colors in that? No, it's six. It is six, okay. Yeah, right. and that's actually where uh, our friend Jason Snell's sixcolors.com dot com. Yeah, comes right. From. Sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's the, and they do go in in rainbow order. It's just that they like bit shifted by two, and so mm. instead of starting at like red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, they uh, uh, it starts with green at the top, and then it's mm-hmm. it's got blue at the bottom. I would like to see Apple just kind of return to more color uh, in general. Like I I have mail open in in one of my computers right now and I'm looking at the sidebar, which is gray on corpse blue. And like, yeah, they they used to be able to use colors for things. And that it was actually really nice. Yeah. I mean, Uh, it's been this, like, it seems like the the post linen era where everything has to be just kind of blue, gray and monochrome. Yeah. Right. And even when they use a different color, like in the notes app, everything is yellow. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I hope so too. I feel like the pendulum has to swing back on that. And I, I actually think it's interesting and you know, you, you've always been, I mentioned this, but like net newswire five looks very, very much like a 2019 Mac app should, but there's a little bit, a little bit of color in those toolbar icons. Mm-hmm. Right, and it goes out of its way to highlight the the feed icons coming from all over. Right, and that adds an awful lot of liveliness to it too. But I I think it's sort of telling about how far to the extreme the current aesthetic is that Net Newswire Five counts as a colorful Mac app. Right. <laughs> True. Yeah. All right. Yep. Uh, you know, and I don't want to blame everything on Johnny Ive, but I blame Johnny Ive. <laughs> Well, because it's his fault, right? Uh, <laughs> I can't help it, you know. And I, you know, I don't know how far in advance his his you know exit from the company, retirement, whatever you want to call it, was known. Uh, 
you know, how much of this was still up in the air when they were making the decisions for what iOS 13 and Mac OS 10.15 Catalina. See, I can't even remember the goddamn numbers. Um, but I can't help but feel that if, if, if there's going to be some kind of post Johnny Ive pendulum swing in the other direction, it wouldn't have been this year. It'll be, it'll start next year. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, anything else that you wanted to talk about before we, before we sign off for this Gosh. Labor Day weekend? Now, I guess there's an Apple event coming up. We've got new, o- new OSs. Yeah. People seem to be having a rock. Developers are having kind of a rocky summer. Yeah. And I don't know what to say about that. Some summers are easier than others. That's kind of the thing I keep hearing about most though. I uh, guess most of my friends are developers. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I feel like the Mac is in an interesting state uh, and without getting, I don't want to make it political because I don't think it should be political, but with Catalina, Catalina, Catalyst, which is the UI kit, you know, bring your iPad apps to the Mac technology that they sort of pre-announced last year so that they could ship their own uh, home and news and voice recorder apps. And now it's it's going to be part of Mac OS 10.15. Uh, it's sort of weird and there's people arguing, uh, you know, on Twitter about whether that's the future of the Mac and whether Swift UI is the future of the Mac. And in the meantime, app, app kit, AKA good old fashioned Coco just keeps rolling along. Yeah. I mean, I just wrote a app with it. That's really, really good. <laughs> app kit is super. Uh, you did mention, you mentioned that, that one of the reasons for drawing the line, that line in the sand at 10.14.4 was that's where you didn't need to embed the Swift libraries. That means, of course, that you use Swift to write either all or most of NetNewsWire 5? I actually don't even know. I know you um, used it to some degree, but... Yeah, pretty, the actual application user interface code, much of what's in the frameworks, um, there's some really, really old stuff, like the stuff I started with, um, the RSS parser, like whatever, four years ago, that, that's written in, in Objective-C. But pretty much everything else is Swift. And what what are your opinions on it? After now having dug your teeth in and used it to write a real app that is actually shipping, Swift is it's a lot of fun. Sometimes it's like driving a hot rod, but then you just like run into a brick wall at eighty miles an hour. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of fun until that moment. But the, but you, you know you get up, you shake it off, go go back down at 80 miles an hour or whatever. Um, so it's a lot of fun. I still, it, it's a lot prettier to look at than objective C, but I still find objective C's, um, philosophy, the way it works under the hood, um, to be beautiful in a way that, um, that I don't find in Swift. Swift's amazing, but objective C not on the page, but under the hood is, is lovely. And not even its implementation necessarily, but the the concept, you know, right. uh, message passing and, and all right. that kind of stuff inherited from small talk. I think, yeah, and that it, just this com- really appeals to me. This completely dynamic runtime mm-hmm. yeah. that you can sort of mess with in unforeseen ways, or you could at least in the old days, um, you know, which was definitely what small talk was all about. Yeah. Says, and, and the idea wasn't says me who never wrote a line of small talk in his life. <laughs> yeah. And and it's not about, you know, you could use it for like evil, stupid hacks. It's actually about, you know, 
it's really about writing applications um, um, in the most elegant way possible. And Objective C was such a compromise, right? Because it's that kind of small talky stuff, but with C, which is such the opposite thing, um, all combined into one. Um, and that, you know, that made for a deeply strange language. But the Objective C part was really, really, really cool. And it was great for writing apps. I mean, you know, we talked earlier about 2002. I'm working on that newswire. And the thing was, the Cocoa framework was amazing and so far beyond anything that that I'd ever seen. And it was and it was built on the capabilities of Objective C. In fact, all our apps still are, even the, even the ones written in Swift. You know, we're still using AppKit and UIKit and whatever, right. and those are those are Objective C frameworks. Right and, until Swift UI has years to sort of. I'm not saying you can't use it now, but it's you know it, it's early days and it's such a massive undertaking. Until Swift UI really can supersede AppKit and UIKit, it, that that's still going to be the case. Yeah, and that's going to be a while. It looks to me like Apple's got the right attitude. You know, you you still have a host of AppKit or UIKit, and then you can use Swift UI where where it makes sense to and where it actually works. And so that's what we'll be doing. And so. Gradually, over time, we'll have a more and more Swift UI universe. Uh, and that's cool. I like that. It's a testimony to the genius of the original Next frameworks, you know, which date back to 1989, 1990, um, just how, how philosophically they're still aligned with the way that, that things still work and are useful and feel modern today. I mean, how much, how many ways of making computers do X, Y, and Z in 1990 are still applicable today. Yeah. Right. Good point. I mean, maybe there's some command line stuff, you know, at the C level, you know, that's, that still hasn't changed much, but in terms of building rich applications, boy, there's, there's not a lot. I mean, I'm sure Adobe has frameworks that probably go back that far, um, internally, but, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's really remarkable. Before we sign off, Brent, got any plans for Labor Day? I guess that hopefully this episode will come out tomorrow. People can listen to it as they barbecue. What better way to enjoy fun with your family than listening to, to us talk about uh, RSS Reader? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what the holidays are for, RSS. Gather the kids. Me, I'm going to go, go drink and eat with some family members. So, yeah, I've got a good day. Uh, yeah, we've got a good forecast here. Beautiful weather. If I could have, if it was technically, well, I guess it is technically feasible to podcast from outside. If it was acoustically pleasing to, Mm. to record a podcast while outside, I'd have done this from my deck because it is absolutely positively peak Philadelphia weather. Nice and warm, nice and sunny. Um, not too muggy. No, it's really nice. It's really good. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know what happened to the humidity, but it's like September came early. Cool. Anyway, enjoy the holiday. My best to Sheila. Uh, and Thank it's you. always good to have you on. I'm going to make sure that we don't go another full year. I'm going to make sure Skype never tells me it's been more than a year. <laughs> I, I've turned brown in your Skype. <laughs> <laughs>